Good morning. It's good to be with you here this morning. I, I mean, obviously, I'm here most Sundays. Those of you who don't know, I'm uh, the, the pastor of Family Ministries here, and so I'm not often preaching up here, but um, I just, my name is Brad. If those of you haven't met me yet, I think there's at least one who hasn't met me yet, but we'll meet soon, I hope. Um, but let's, uh, let's open this morning in prayer. Dear Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for new life, and we thank you for this family that we can join together, Lord. Pray now you will guide us in our time of listening and, and being open to your spirit. Bless these times, moments together, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so it's July 4th. First, that means the year's half over. It also means in a couple weeks I'll be, uh, I don't know if commemorating is really the right word, but at least it'll mark that I've been here at MRC for six years. Yeah, that's like longer than I was at Iowa State, and that's saying something. So, uh, In those years, I've had a chance to preach a little bit here and there, and you guys have been kind enough to at least appear to listen. And uh, I'm thankful for that. A couple of years ago, I think I looked it up, it was just over, it was about two and a half years ago almost, I preached on uh, a sermon about fear and how we overcome fear. Everybody remember that? Uh, that's good. If you rose your hand, I was going to have to have the next sermon about honesty, and so that would be a problem. So, but I did preach about fear, and it wasn't so much, it wasn't saying like we don't fear because fear is useful and needed at times. We can't live a life in the absence of fear, but we are called to overcome fear. And I talked about overcoming fear with courage and among community and among our trust in God. So that was just over a couple years ago. And then just to review a little bit more about a month ago is the last time I preached on and I focused on the. Um, the scripture of John 3, and specifically John 3.16, and the story of Jesus and Nicodemus. And we looked a little closer at John 3.16, and, and where, what we put the emphasis on. Do we put the emphasis on the first part of the verse or the second part of the verse? God's action of love for the world or our action of believing? What do we, what do we emphasize the most, and how does that affect how we see others? Then last week we had a, uh, a guest, Randy, Pastor Randy, uh, shared with us a story about Peter and Cornelius. And when Cornel Peter uh, had a vision about the different animals, some clean and unclean, and was told that he should go ahead and eat. And he, he took that vision, and that led him to go and visit Nicodemus, who was a Gentile and who was someone he's not supposed to have dinner with. But because of, of being open to the Spirit and being open and praying, we, we see in the, in the story in Acts 10 that uh, Peter overcome, overcame his prejudices and overcame the customs in order to do what the Holy Spirit was leading him to do. He, uh, he went to a Gentile's house. He, he also then, they witnessed the Holy Spirit come upon those Gentiles, and then they had a, a service of baptism a very monumental moment in the life of, of the church as we strive to 
to reach out to those that are different from us. And, and Andy talked a lot about how do we do that? How do we overcome our prejudices? How do we pray in a way that uh, leads us to maybe be uncomfortable? And that's okay. Well, today we're going to look at a, some other different people. Um, it's actually a story about a powerful government leader. He, he's kind of known for being insecure. He's... He's fearful of his political adversaries. He's extremely focused on his reputation. He can be known to be cruel, even the family members. And he loves to build big, beautiful buildings. Huge, even. And then we're going to talk about his relationship with a family of refugees. Now, I know you all know who we're talking about, right? Herod and Jesus. Jesus' family. Who else were you thinking? So we're going to read about, that's where the, if you look in the bulletin, the, the title of the sermon, Christmas in July, it's not exactly the story of Christmas Day, but we're going to look at the story of right after Jesus was born. And it's, it comes up, um, sometimes I preach from the scriptures that are in what we say is a lectionary, which is like a the three-year system of going through the overarching themes and, and of the Bible and kind of follow the church calendar year. And this particular passage comes up usually about once, or comes up right after Christmas. So you might actually, in some traditions, come upon this passage and hear it preached on on like January 1st. But I thought it was fitting and appropriate today to, to look at it on July 1st. So here's a little bit of the background. We have we have the story of the wise men, and they have come, and they come to find this king of the Jews that they've heard prophesied about. Now they come to Herod, and, he, and he, they use and they talk to him and find out what he knows. And of course, Herod, being who he is, is a little bit startled and not really a fan of anybody else being called king of the Jews. And so he kind of plays it coy, though, and he says, okay, yeah, um, go, go find this this baby or and uh, young child, and then come back and let me know um, where he is, so that I can can go and worship him also. Did I mention this government leader? He's also a liar. And so we have the Herod. He sent off the wise men. The wise men went and visited uh, Jesus. Um, we know it's likely that's not not like in our manger scenes. Sometimes we have the we three kings or the wise men there with the shepherds, but it's Tradition kind of shows us we think it's the wise men probably came a little bit later. They Jesus might have been a year old or something like that, but still in the area. And so the wise men have visited and they were warned to not go back to Herod. And so they they fled. And that brings us uh, to verse to Matthew chapter two, verse thirteen. It says. After the wise men were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up and flee to Egypt with the child and his mother, the angel said. Stay there until I tell you to return, because Herod is going to try and kill the child. That night, Joseph left for Egypt, and the child and Mary, his mother, and they, with the child and Mary, his mother, and they stayed there until Herod's death. This fulfilled what the Lord had spoken through the prophet, I called my son out of Egypt. Herod was furious when he learned that the wise men had outwitted him. He sent soldiers to kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under. 
because the wise men had told him the star when the star first appeared to them about two years earlier. Herod's brutal action fulfilled the prophecy of Jeremiah. A cry of anguish is heard in Ramah, weeping and mourning, unrestrained. Rachel weeps for her children, refusing to be comforted, for they are dead. When Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and told him, Get up and take the child and his mother back to the land of Israel, because those who were trying to kill the child are dead. So Joseph returned immediately to Israel with Jesus and his mother. But when he learned that the new ruler was Herod's son, Archelaus, he was afraid. Then in another dream, he was warned to go to Galilee. So they went and lived in a town called Nazareth. This fulfilled what was spoken by the prophets concerning the Messiah. He will be called a Nazarene. Here ends the reading of the Lord. So, there you have it. Joseph and Mary and Jesus were fleeing violence and persecution, and they fled to a foreign land. I guess today we would call them refugees. How, how did this happen, though? How has this come about in the story of God sending his son and to be born in Bethlehem? This story just seems like an extra hurdle, a huge, humongous hurdle in the middle or the beginning of the story. Well, to kind of look at how it happened, I want to focus a little bit more today on Herod. Herod was the Roman client king of Judea, otherwise known as the king of the Jews. He had been, been in this role for about 35 years. He was appointed by the Roman Senate in about uh, 40 BCE. He was also in leadership before that for a few years, um, also in the area. And it was not an easy road to power. It included uh, marrying, marrying a second wife, to kind of help his political chances, and then therefore, and also banishing his first wife and son. Herod identified himself as a Jew, but was only considered that really a faithful, or considered that by, other, by some people. Some didn't think his lifestyle really fit with the faith very well. Part of that lifestyle, though, probably the reasons why, some of those reasons is because it included executing that actually same wife, second wife that he married, and some children and other and family members. So but overall from what I've learned and read this week the opinions on Herod and how successful a world leader he was or, or leader of that area is a little bit mixed. There's some different interpretations. He did some things that people liked. He he uh, rebuilt the second, second temple and so uh, the temple there in Jerusalem was a huge and grand building that was uh, very much accredited to Herod. And he did, he did lots of other buildings and developing things, and he cut taxes. So in some things, he might have been considered a success, successful leader. But there was also accusations that his lavish spending led to, to poverty of his people. He also seemed to have this extreme fear of losing his power and also not being respected. We see this, of course, in the executions of family members to guard his power where, it's, where he stood. And there's even a story that 
that fortunately didn't happen, but the story is that he was going, he asked to have mass executions of, of noble people after his death so that at least somebody would be mourning after his death, even if it wasn't really for him. Sound like anybody you know? Anyone else? Pharaoh. Pharaoh is pretty similar in this, and, he, and there's some similarities in the stories. Um, if you think about it, the, stories in, the story of the Israelites going to Egypt in the Old Testament, they also had um, Joseph, funny enough, another Joseph in the Old Testament leads. Uh, he, act, he actually does, obviously doesn't choose to go to Egypt, but once he's there and comes into some power and wealth, um, he brings his family down to Egypt, and they're treated relatively well. There's uh, the the Pharaoh and the, uh, the leaders of the Egyptians are are not immediately uh, mean and slave labor leading to the to the Jewish and Israelite people, but over time the the people grew in their number, and I I think it's fair to say that Pharaoh then started to get worried again about power and his status and being able to control these people, and so he again another instance of of babies or, or, or young children being killed to try to s survive an uprising. The Old Testament story, of course, is when we have Moses. All the, all the male babies were being murdered, but uh, Moses' mother snuck him away, and we know he was raised uh, under, right under Pharaoh's nose, essentially. And so there's a lot of similarities between um, someone in power again, uh, worried about holding on to that power, and the the destruction that comes and holds and comes after that. And when one takes a look at the Bible as a, as overall, really, it becomes pretty apparent to me, at least, that being a refugee or fleeing violence or moving to a foreign land is a very common theme. We have Abraham moving from Ur to Canaan, and then later in life he he fled also to Egypt, actually, to to avoid famine. Lot, we know the story of Lot escaping uh, his community, but even though his wife didn't make it. David and his life had to flee from King Saul, otherwise he was going to be murdered, and had to live in a foreign territory for a while. Ruth followed Naomi, even though she was a Moabite, into a foreign land for her then. And Ruth even gets mentioned in the in the line of Jesus right here in chapter one of Matthew. And we also have Elijah who flees from the wrath and persecution of Jezebel. So there's quite a few examples of uh, refugees or any or other um, examples of people leaving and fleeing violence and moving to foreign lands we have in the scriptures. But then we also have some direct commands in the scriptures about how to treat foreigners and those in, from other lands. Deuteronomy chapter 10, um, in verses 17 through 19, says, For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords. He is the great God, the mighty and awesome God, who shows no partiality and cannot be bribed. He ensures that orphans and widows receive justice. He shows love to the foreigners living among you and gives them food and clothing. So you too 
must show love to foreigners, for you yourselves were once foreigners in the land of Egypt. Leviticus 19.33 says, Do not take advantage of foreigners who live among you in your land. And later in Leviticus, Leviticus 23.22 says, When you harvest the crops of your land, do not harvest the grain along the edges of your fields, and do not pick up what the harvesters drop. Leave it for the poor and the foreigners living among you. I am the Lord your God. Then moving into the New Testament and the Gospels, Matthew 25, verse 35, Jesus says, For I was hungry, and you fed me. I was thirsty, and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me into your home. And then just a reminder from last week's passage that Pastor Randy shared about in Acts 10, in verse 34 and 35, it says, Then Peter replied, I see very clearly that God shows no favoritism. In every nation, he accepts those who fear him and do what is right. So what can we learn from the stories of refugees in the Bible, the stories of those fleeing um, their homelands to try to find a better land? What can we learn from these scriptures that give us commands on how to treat those from other places? I think, it, to me, it comes down to basically two choices. And, it, and basically the choices come down to living a life that follows more on the path of Herod or Pharaoh. I'm not calling anybody Herod or Pharaoh, but I'm just in their, in their line of, or follow their path is a path of fear. We can live a fearful life is one option. Or we have the other option which I think is more of the following examples of both Josephs of the Old and New Testament, Joseph and Mary, of course, as they brought Jesus to Egypt. And that's a life of faithfulness. It's not a life of no fear, like we've mentioned before, but it's a life of faithfulness overcoming that fear. So just a little bit, I want to talk about what does it look like to live in that fear? What does it look like to live a fearful life that way. And when I was going over some readings this week, uh, one, one reading that kind of popped out at me and, and a word especially that popped out to me is that when you live a fearful life, it, it often means you're living a life of distance. A life of distance. And I don't think any of us would choose, consciously to choose this life but I want to go through a few attributes of this life and just see where we can learn and where we, can, where we might feel the Spirit nudging us. But in general, people that live a life, fearful life, are distant from community. And the farther away from community they grow, that need, they need that community for, to be grounded and supported. We all need community because we're interactive, interpersonal people. We're social beings. God made us that way, and we need each other to stay in, in, the, in the community that we talked about a couple years ago, overcoming fear. So fearful life will lead you a, a distance away from community. Living in a fearful life also, though, 
leads you to be a distance from reality. And I, what I mean by this is I, I feel like when, when I'm living a fearful life, everything turns into a crisis. Did you see the news story about such and such? Isn't crime just horrible nowadays, even when crime is actually better than it used to be? Everything that we see and hear is a crisis. One example, like I, that's kind of the, the situation we even, why we, we watch the news, but you have to be careful on how much you let your children watch the news. I think I, I pushed the limit the other day when I let my boys watch the news about the story of someone playing video games, connected with someone online, and the guy from Europe traveled all the way to the U.S. and tried to break into the teenager's house, and the mom took care of him. But that is kind of a very scary story if that happened to you. But it happened once in the whole world. And so is it wise to focus on that story? Now do I have to change my whole life because of something that I saw on the national news one time? If we're not careful, we end up exaggerating the danger. And that exaggeration and that fear gets passed on to our children. People living in fear also can be distant in their, in their language. Using terms like those people or they, them, over there. Or even resorting to flat-out name-calling. By using the language this way, we can kind of keep ourselves feeling morally superior. We can, feel, we can judge the other person. And it helps us kind of, and we use certain language, we can help dehumanize them. And it makes us feel a little bit safer and, and maybe even desensitized to their humanity. When I could group a bunch of people together and lump them together and say, I, I don't agree with them and I don't, and, and call them those people, it's easy to have a distance and it's easier to not see them for the unique creation of God that they are. Some other things I think that happen when you're living in fear is you become most concerned about holding on to the current power that you have or keeping the current power structure around you in place. You can even use code words maybe and say, it's, well, it's all about safety. We've got to be safe. And safety is up to a point, fine. But as, we talk, as Randy mentioned last week, when our prayers are all about safety, is it God that is nudging us that way or is that our own personal instincts. We can use, we use safety and we can, or we'll use phrases like, but it's the law. That's a good way to, to keep the current power structure where it is. People living in fear are also very suspicious, always assuming that the stranger is out to get them. I mean, we even have kid warnings for that. Stranger danger, watch out. We, we, we work ourselves up into that Frenzy where everyone is scary and everyone is dangerous. We don't know what they're going to do. Granted, there's times to be uh, appropriate when you meet new people or when you don't know someone. But do we really want to live in a world of fear where everyone is dangerous that we don't know? And lastly, this leads, it leads to... One, one final thing is I think people living, living in fear end up not meeting anybody new. 
If you don't meet anybody new, it makes it a lot easier to stay safe, for one, and to also kind of keep your current prejudices intact. If we don't know someone, if we don't know anybody from, for instance, another country or from another culture, it becomes easier to hold on to our judgments. Okay, so enough about living a fearful life. Let's get a little bit to the positive side. What does it look like to live a faithful life, to be more of a follower of, what, of Joseph and Mary and, of course, Jesus? Not a fear-free life, but one that overcomes those fears. Well, it basically comes down to a few different things, I think. One is, the first thing I want to talk about is listening. It comes down to listening, but I also would say equally connect that to prayer. We need to listen, pray with our listening ears on. Because as we learned last week, our natural instincts about lead us to pray about things about our comfort and our safety, and we pray for, I pray for good weather and for cooler weather and all these different things. And that's what we naturally want. We want naturally to have, be comfortable and safe and have personal blessings. But in, but in order to live a faithful life, are we willing to go into prayer and ask God to change us, to pull and push us from our prejudices, to listen to where he leads us to go, to who he wants us to meet? How can we adjust our prayers so that we stretch and are open to what God wants to show us? Can we be open and listen just like Peter and Cornelius listened in their prayers? Secondly, we need to learn. We need to learn from others. I don't personally know hardly anything about what it's like to live among violence or persecution or to live in a foreign country of any kind. I haven't been subject to anything, any kind of major violence or witnessed really any major violence in my life. I don't know what it's like. But I can listen to those who have. I think one way we, uh, many of us did that is our trip to Haiti was an impactful trip for many of us to see what it's like to be in a different culture that doesn't have the same comforts and same even um, protections that we have. Another way we can learn is actually at the end of this month, the Van Nords are coming in um, and sharing with us, and they're, they serve, literally serve refugee people in Africa. It's a, it's a little different population because they're, they, the refugees there have literally no place to go back to. Their, their country does not exist anymore. But, it, but it's still a, a, a great story of how we can serve those that, uh, that don't have a home. And then another way... This week, uh, there's 12 teenagers and, and, and us leaders are going to take our trip to Nashville this week. And I always struggle to kind of figure out what to call these trips because it's a mission trip in, in a way, but it's also a service trip and it's also a, just a learning trip. But one of the things that makes me most excited about this week is that when I was looking for possibilities, um, it said that this group that we're going to go serve with serves the population of immigrants and refugees and, and elderly and children. And so it, I'm hoping to be able to, that we're all going to learn a little bit more about things that we don't know about and that we haven't personally experienced. So we need to listen to God through our prayers, but we also need to learn 
from others around us. I also actually also had the privilege this, this this past week to speak to a couple people who work in organizations that are helping refugees on the on the front lines. Uh, one was a works with Bethany Christian Services, which I think are based out of Grand Rapids, but they have multi-sites. And the other was Samaritus, which has at least an office and maybe his main base is in, in Lansing. Both of these places do a lot of work helping unaccompanied minors, and some are considered refugees and others are more uh, fit into the categories of the children that you might see on TV lately coming from Central America. What I learned is... I, they, they had lots of information, and, and I'd love to share more with you. And I, I even put out some brochures um, from Samaritus because they, are, they were actually in Midland just past week. Anybody at the farmer's market on Wednesday apparently could have seen them, I guess. They were, vis they were visiting trying to make uh, get the word out and, and spread, and they have a lot of services that they, that they provide. So um, check out Samaritus when you can. But what I learned from... From especially the, the woman from Bethany, uh, actually, is that um, for years they've been serving um, children that come from Africa a lot, um, the Sudan and different places like that, and they're, they're usually older children, like I think she said it was like 16 to 21, or so, but it's, it's children that um, somehow got separated from their parents and from their home permanently. There's really... They've, they've lived in a refugee camp now over in Africa for a year or so, and there's really no way or no outlook where they're going to find their parents and be reunited. And so they've gone through this long process of a year or more to be approved to come to the U.S. And Bethany then helps find places for them to go if it's a, if it's a foster home or something like that. That's uh, one of the things that um, she worked with. And she said there used to be a steady stream of five or ten um, kids that we were always kind of working with and, and going through a month or so to try to find homes for them. But she said, recently, it's pretty much all dried up. There's, there's nobody coming from um, those countries in, in Africa like, like the Sudan. And I, I'm not going to get into specific policies today, but I think it's pretty safe to say that they're, they didn't stop coming because it's safe over there now. Lastly, though, we listen, we learn, finally we act. And I know not all of you are going to agree with me on all my immigration and refugee policy ideas or beliefs, but we still have the same Bible, the same words of Jesus to look to and follow. I encourage you to check out Samaritus, and I hope to stay connected with them and learn what more, um, how we can be of help. But what can our response be to those fleeing violence like so many of the people that we read about in the Bible did? What is our response as a church? There's lots of opportunity and there's lots of need. So I, I pray that we will all lis listen and learn and act. And some of you, though, are probably a little perturbed at me, thinking I shouldn't be preaching on something so political. And I would say, yeah, I sure, yes and no. I agree partisan pol politics is something best left 
out of church or left out, period. But I can't do that when it comes to the politics of the kingdom. In following Christ his, and his kingdom values, I can't help but be political. Because at its basic level, politics are, are about how we treat people. Being a child of the king can't help but make us political. I want to close with a quote um, from someone some of you probably maybe have heard from, um, Shane Claiborne. And uh, he's, a, he's an activist and a, and a writer, uh, lives in a communal um, village home type thing that he, that he helped start years ago in Philadelphia. Um, lately he's been, I follow him on Twitter, and lately he's been getting arrested a lot, protesting things that he believes Jesus stands for. So he's a, he wrote a book, not surprisingly, called Jesus for President, Politics for Ordinary Radicals. And I'm gonna, I'll close with his words, and then we'll pray. But the problem is that Jesus' kingdom and Paul's citizenship in heaven was about the real world, here and now. It was about allegiance. Jesus and Paul were telling the people that they must live here with their identities as aliens. They must live by the rules of heaven amid the violent earthly powers. And to claim that one's citizenship is in heaven is to say that you pledge allegiance not to any of the kingdoms of this world, of the world, but to Jesus and the body of those who take on his suffering, enemy-loving posture toward the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your spirit. We thank you for continually to teach and mold us. And we thank you even for the uncomfortableness. We pray that you will, your spirit and your kingdom will sprout from that, Lord, and be, uh, and those that are suffering and in pain will be comforted uh, because, because of your calling for us, Lord. Thank you for this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're now going to be uh, partaking in the Lord's table. If you'd please turn with me to your worship bulletins on page 4. Follow along, you will have the, the bold 